What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today, special, special, special show. Why is it a special show? Because one of the biggest ledges of all time is on the show. One of my favorite guitar players of all time. Actually, Cat that recorded literally my favorite guitar solo of all time. Larry Carlton is on the show. He tracked down a bunch of Steely Dan stuff. Well, what's the guitar solo, you ask? Kid Charlemagne. Two guitar solos. Two legendary things that every guitar player should learn, in my opinion. He also played on Josie, several other hits. He's had several other bands that he's either been a member of or been a sideman for. This cat is a straight up legend. I'm not gonna hold you up anymore. Let's get to it. You guys hip to DistroKid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up, and I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out you know whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing, and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set! If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership, distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It is a real treat to have you. You're an absolute legend and one of my favorite guitar players of all time. What a treat. Well, thank you, Corey. Jeez, uh, you're making a lot of noise out there, man. I made some noise years ago, but you are out there doing it, and I'm happy to be here with you. This is cool. Thank you, man. Thank you. Where are you Where are you right now? Where are you I, living? I live outside of Nashville since 1995. Nice. Okay, so got to get it out there. Iconic guitar solos. We're a guitar podcast. I want to talk iconic guitar solos for a little bit, just to start us out, because... There are plenty of guitar solos that are just part of the the canon that you need to learn when you're first starting guitar. There's guitar solos that you need to learn when you're in college or after. There's, you know, just a handful of, well, you're kind of expected to know these things. Sure. I'm going to get to a couple of your solos in a minute, but I want to know from you, what are your favorite guitar solos that you've ever heard? And it's okay to say your own solos if you're like that too. <laughs> wow. You know, one comes to mind uh, that was a jazz solo by Joe Pass. And I was um, 14 years old when I bought this record. It's called Catch Me by Joe mm. Pass. And um, his solo on the title track, Catch Me, as a bebop solo, uh, changed my world. And I went back and learned it note for note, but never could play it at the speed Joe did it. I just didn't have those kind of chops and still don't have those kind of chops. 
Uh, but yeah, that solo comes to mind. I mean, it changed the way I looked at the guitar. Um, wow, as far as pop solos, though, nothing comes to mind right now. I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, I was born in 1948. So I came up listening to 50s music and then early 60s, you know, there was the doo-wop stuff. And um, when Sleepwalk came out in 1959, uh, that was obviously part of my teen years. So I obviously learned Sleepwalk and uh, jump ahead 30 years and I record Sleepwalk and it becomes a hit for me also. <laughs> and this is the 60 year anniversary of the tune Sleepwalk. And so I just did a little blurb for Guitar Player Magazine about the tune. But yeah, right off the top of my head, I can't think of any solos that thrilled me back in the day. Is there any particular guitar part that you've played throughout the years, whether it be on your albums or other people's albums, that you feel like, I really nailed it? Yeah, there are. And uh, during my studio days, uh, when we did Court and Spark for Joni Mitchell, I think 1974, I think. Yeah, when that yeah did you play on, uh, was it Help Me and Free Man in Paris? Yeah, about six of the cuts on there. I wasn't available for a few of the nights, and so they brought in the great Dennis Budimir, and he played on a couple of tracks. But yeah, something about her material, the parts that I happened to hear against her guitar and against her voice, uh, very, very proud of the way those sessions came out, for sure. Yeah. You mentioned Joe Pass. It's interesting, you, you couldn't come, there, there was no immediate pop or rock guitar solo that came to your mind. You clearly have a jazz background, and a lot of your playing is so much of that, but some of the albums that you've played on and some of the things that people know you for would be considered pop or rock things, but clearly with a jazz influence. How have you approached adding jazz language, bebop language to pop music? Like, when do people, like, I guess my, I, the real question here is, I'm trying to figure out how do you get that right? And how, how do people do it where they get it wrong as well? I think having a grass, but also being brought up listening to B.B. King and all the pop music of the 60s, it kind of melted together as my style. So I have this vast harmonic background for chords, but the approach of a pop guitar player was bending the notes. And that's why I think it comes out sounding right, as you put it. Mm -hmm. I'm not forcing jazz notes into a pop solo is just a natural part of my vocabulary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think for some people who don't really know the language intimately, it can be very hard to to make it feel convincing or make it feel authentic. I guess maybe that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, you know, some guys um, who are really into jazz, they're into pop, but they learn a few jazz vocabulary licks then they try forcing those into their solos. And to me, it doesn't sound natural because it sounds like something they've learned. Mm. So how do you get something to sound more natural rather than so practiced? You know, you'll see people play things on stage and you can tell, oh, I can really tell that you've practiced that lick or whatever you're playing. And then other times you see people play and it feels, oh, that person is just flowing from them. It feels very natural. How do you get to that point of playing natural? I think it comes from a lot of playing, and I mean a lot of playing, and playing out live with other musicians to where you just become one with your guitar 
and your vocabulary, your heart, your fingers all work together. And that just comes from experience. And I also think that uh, who we are as a musician is reflected in everything we play because we're playing things that we responded to as a beginner, as an Mm. intermediate player, and then as a pro. So when I was touched by John Coltrane's sax solo on a song, I didn't learn the solo, but my heart remembered the feeling. Mm. And that response, that reflection is what happens when I play the guitar. I want to feel what I felt when I first heard something I liked. So when you're playing on your own tunes versus playing on somebody else's music, let's say, because uh, this is something that, that I've talked to with other people who do film scores. When they're scoring for film, you're setting the tone for what the director and the writer wants for this. In a similar way, when you're asked as a session player to come in, play a solo, play parts on a song, you need to capture their emotion and what they're doing and capture that feeling, yet also add your own creative self to it, as opposed to when you're writing and playing all of your own music, you're the one who is the captain of that ship and you get to decide that. So when you're playing on other people's albums or when you've played on other people's albums, played solos for things, how do you navigate the difference between your own emotion and what you're feeling and who you are in relation to what a song is calling for or what an artist's vision is for a song or album? Yeah, I think I always start, and I think most of us that were session guys, we always start with what we feel. That's what we can give most honestly to the producer, the artist, and the song. And then if they want subtle changes or if they say, no, let's don't play that approach, let's try a different approach, then you're off trying to help them with their vision. But I always started with, this is what I hear on this tune. And I'm, re- I'm remembering when doing the Nightfly with Donald Fagan, um, one of the tunes, he wanted a rhythm part. And I started playing some rhythm and he stopped me and he said, no, more old school. Well, whatever old school meant to Donald, I related to at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that was him saying, no, I have a vision for this rhythm part. How can Larry help me accomplish that? But yeah, he stopped me and he said, no, 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 more old school. So that's just that being available, being a servant on the session. Uh, and then if you're the right guy for that tune, then of course you can accomplish what the guys want. Yeah. When you look at your career, well, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase this. When I look at your career, I see you as somebody with 33 albums as a band leader. I see you as somebody who's been a member of Foreplay, who's played on countless sessions and been a part of so many incredible albums for other artists as well. Did you and do you need that balance for your artistic self? Or were you just kind of moving around, playing what came around and kind of feeling things out? Where, where do you feel most at home? Well, it, it came and did come in seasons. Hmm. As a, uh, <clears throat> as, a, as a teenager, my vision of myself as a more mature musician, maybe going into my 20s, this is my vision of me at 16 years old. I just wanted to play in smoky jazz clubs. I had no aspiration to be a star, no aspirations to be a studio musician. I just wanted to play the guitar and play every night in a club because that's what my heroes were doing. But that season ended and opportunities came, and all of a sudden I become this 
session guy doing 500 sessions a year when I'm 22 years old. So I loved that season because I was working with some of the greatest musicians in the world every day, learning how to make records. One of my friends and the definitely one of the top guitar players in the 60s and 70s, and I started in 1971, uh, was Louis Shelton. And records that Louis played on, his guitar was mixed right up front on the record. You could hear what he was doing. At that time, I was a young session player, and my guitar parts were just part of the band. So I was having a session with Louis one afternoon, and we were walking to lunch, and I said exactly what I just told you, Corey. Hey, man, your guitar's mixed right up there. How did you figure that? And he said, I try to think like an arranger. Hmm. Well, that never occurred to me at 21 years old. I was thinking like a guitar player. So that day changed my whole approach to playing the guitar in the studio. And I became a much, much better uh, session guy because I started thinking more in that. Now it seems obvious because all the guys think like arrangers. So I'm, I became very comfortable in the studio and achieved some success. And really, I got burned out on session work in about 1977. I couldn't do any more work and I couldn't charge any more money. And I wanted to branch out. I was doing some arranging and I was approached. I started playing a jazz club in North Hollywood and I was approached by a producer from CBS Records. And he said, you want to make a record? Why well, I hadn't thought about making a solo album. Yeah. So things just came to me from playing the guitar. That's my point, I guess. I love that. Yeah, I, I definitely have noticed the same thing for my own session work as well. When I think more like an arranger, when I think more of how my parts interact with everything else, oh, those end up sounding, they're louder in the mix, or those are the ones that don't get muted <laughs> or replaced by a keyboard or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's incredible that you were doing 500 sessions a year. And to think that those were all in person, of course. Yeah. Now, for me, the majority of what I do, well, not the majority, I guess the last year it's been the majority, but I would say about 50-50 sessions that I do and a lot of the other session players that I know, it's remote sessions versus in-studio sessions. And of course, that depends on what town you live in. Are you doing a lot of remote sessions now, or what are you? What is your session flow like nowadays? Well, when I moved uh, to Nashville, I didn't come here with any aspirations to do any session work at all. My solo career was doing fine. Yeah, and I enjoyed the touring and then making a new album every year or so. So really, I I haven't played very much on anybody else's records in over twenty years. Once in a while, something will come up. So that's not been part of my life doing somebody else's projects. So really just focusing on my career, recording live albums. You're probably aware of a few of them. You know, I did a couple with Luke and a couple with Robin Ford. I've enjoyed doing that as opposed to producing in the studio with the guys. Uh, I haven't been on smooth jazz radio in many, many, many years with anything new. So as something different, I'm doing a project now with Paul Brown, both of us playing guitar. It'll be nice to be back on the radio, playing some cool stuff. You know, it's not challenging music, but it can be very comfortable and very fun to play. Yeah. So I'm doing that. I'm doing a project for that now. You just said something that, that resonates with me right now. It's not challenging, but it's fun. Yeah. And it's, and it's something that you like doing. And when I think about a lot of your playing, 
Well, you said before, I don't have the chops to do this Joe Pass solo and never have, and I don't. And when I think about your playing, obviously you have a very serious command over your instrument. You know your way around the instrument. You have chops. But it's not one of those things where everything you play and everything you're known for is super technically proficient. It's more about the note choices, the phrasing, the feel, the tone, all of those other things that occasionally get overlooked. Yeah. So I'm wondering, because a lot of people know how to practice technique. It's like weightlifting. All right, I'm going to keep track of, I'm going to lift, you know, 120 BPM, 16th notes. And in three days, I'm going to be 124, you know, whatever. Sure. With practicing phrasing, practicing, yeah, note choices, time, feel, those sort of things, they're a little more elusive to practice. Are there some tips or practice techniques that you can maybe shed some light on for people to work on, te- on excuse me, on note choices, phrasing, that sort of thing? I think, um, well, what comes to mind right now is just to imitate the guys that you like listening to. And not all guitar players, I'm not saying that. If you yeah. hear a sax player that touches you, learn a chorus of his solo and phrase with him if you're touched by it. Not because you like the notes, but did you feel something? And I know that's what happened to me in my youth. The things that emotionally touched me, I started wanting to sound like that. And the things that didn't touch me, like speed and technique and all those things, didn't become part of my vocabulary and part of my heart for the music. So yeah, I would imitate. I would learn a Joe Pass solo and then analyze it. If I couldn't play it up to speed, I still had an understanding harmonically of what he was doing. That gave me the feeling. Well, let's just give one specific exercise because people, some of the some of the listeners are pretty. They they want tangible things. Tell me, tell me what to practice. They say. I read an article that I don't remember if you wrote it or if it was a part of a book. When I was in college, I studied some stuff of yours that was to doing. It had to do with triad pairs over dominant chords. Can you talk to me a little bit about just a specific thing that people can practice? Let's just say we're playing over a, a D seven chord. Can you talk a little bit about some triad pair things that you have practiced or will use in your own playing? You know, I never really practiced them. They were concepts that I kind of came up with on my own because I I didn't have a teacher that was saying, if the G major seventh chord is here, there's a D chord triad sitting on top of it would make it a major nine chord. Nobody explained that to me, but I like the sound. So I came up with my own concept, and we will use, let's take a G major seventh chord. I think D major over that, but my instinct is always to make it resolve so that it sounds like I'm still in G. But the, what I call the money notes, the color notes, or the D triad on top of the G major seventh. You get the major seventh, the ninth, you can get the sharp 11. Those are the notes that made it interesting for my ears. So I started thinking that way. And over the years, it just became where I could think chord upon chord, polychordal. But how to teach that, you can only expose the guys to it. Yeah, it's it's difficult because once you put the D chord on top of that G major seventh, you still, those are good notes, but you still have to make it melodically sound like you're in the key of G. Yeah. Difficult to explain just verbally. Yeah. But you did you did say one really important piece, and that is resolving to make it feel like you're still in G. Yeah. Because sometimes I know well, I know I know for myself, when I was in college, 
I would try that exact thing, playing a major triad or even a major seven triad on the five of whatever major chord I'm on. But the, the way I'm phrasing it, it's like, ah, why? how come when I end on this note, it doesn't feel like right. the phrase is resolved? It's like, well, because you have to still feel like you're landing back in G, although you're thinking this other triad over it, right. landing on the one you're actually on is, yeah, that is a big piece. Yep, yep. I love that. I, t I mentioned this before where you've played on sessions, you've been a part of bands, the Crusaders, Four Play, that sort of stuff. And you've done a lot of your own albums. And many of us now are doing a similar thing. My good friend Mark Letieri and I, we both have played on sessions for other things. We've played in bands, I, you know, me with Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers, him with Fearless Flyers and Snarky Puppy. And we both have our own solo careers happening. There's a handful of us that talk to each other about, oh, how do you approach yeah. this? Or how do you approach this? And, you know, we, we go back and forth. You know, we're kind of feeling like we're living parallel, I don't know, careers sure. in a way that, you know, we try to support each other and help each other and cool. understand that it's not a battle. Was there other musicians around you like that that were doing similar things in your squad, I guess, or your team, a peer group that you felt like you were able to connect with on that level? Once I got in the studio work, yes, because the older players, we shared a common, you know, we wanted to play the best parts and things. So we learned a lot from each other. But as a teenager, a lot of the guys I played with didn't have the aptitude or the focus that I did. So it was just good bands, but not somebody who was exceptional. Uh, when I got in college, I went to uh, Long Beach State College, met a couple of players there that we would go to the practice room and play Miles Davis tunes for hours because that's where our heads were at. So we could share our enthusiasm. I think big stepping stone for me was when I got in the studio work because I'd already played clubs my whole teen years and exposed myself and playing jazz every night and then pop music for dances. So getting in the studio, I really got to hear the cream of the crop, how to play the guitar every day. Yeah. And that, ele that elevated my playing. Yeah. Can you speak to your approach playing in a band versus playing solo? Like I mentioned, the Crusaders and foreplay. Is there a philosophy that you approach things? Or, you know, is there a different philosophy when you approach playing with a band than doing your own solo records? Um, subtly, playing a band is kind of like being in studio work. You want to be the most supportive you can to whatever is happening musically at the time. So you're not thinking, I'm not thinking about Larry so much. I'm thinking about the entire unit, like you would when you're playing with the guys. You're, your ears are big. You're going to listen. What's going on over there? It doesn't become so self-centered. But being leader, or when it's time for your solo, that's when you can, all right, now the guys are going to support me. And uh, I did a solo when I first joined Foreplay and we went out to play live. One of our first gigs. I was playing a solo and it just kept going. The solo, third chorus, fourth chorus, fifth chorus. It's because Harvey Mason was so supportive to what I was doing that the solo just didn't want to end. It was a great moment, if you will. And at the end of the solo, we finished and the audience was so appreciative and they were applauding. I looked over at Harvey and I went, thank you. Because it wasn't me. It was Harvey pushing me, getting the, most, getting the most out of my playing. 
So yeah, both both times it's sometimes about you, but usually about the band. Yeah. How can somebody be a better band leader? What are some things you've learned along the way to be a good band leader? Oh gosh. Like how do you get the most out of the musicians you're playing with? Well, it's like casting a movie. Mm. Call the right cast and you don't have to do a lot of direction. Yeah. But when you have the right guys there and you do give direction, they they get it. Yeah. They're on the same page as you musically. So they understand, oh, yeah, no, I understand, Larry. You got it. Here we go. Uh, if you call somebody that's maybe not as appropriate, then you have to work a little harder as leader to get what you want out of it. But I found, yeah, if you cast the right guys, you don't have to say too much. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about Distro Kid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, I want to talk about producers for a second. Let's go to let's go to session work because I'm gonna list a I'm list a handful of albums, some that you've brought up. Donald Fagan, The Nightfly, handfuls of Steely Dan albums, your own albums, working with T Bone Walker. Michael Jackson, Off the Wall, Dolly Parton, 9 to 5, Billy Joel, Piano Man. I mean, that's insane. <laughs> that list is incredible. And there are so many more. I'm just going to leave it there for now. Many of these albums, so many of them, there's been different incredible producers. And just like there's great guitar players in different genres and different styles, there are certain things that make really great musicians. What I'm wondering from your point of view is, what is it that makes really great producers? And what is it that really great producers are asking for out of their guitar players? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I've worked with producers who don't say 12 words during the first hour of the session. That's okay. Everything was going fine. They didn't feel the need to interject just because they're the producer. Mm. But I think... Before the session starts, that's when the producer's work really starts. Obviously, they got to pick the song with the artist, what players are going to be on it, what arranger is going to be on it. So their homework starts way before I come in just to put a guitar part down. But yeah, I've worked with some producers who don't say anything. Larry, what do you feel? That's what they'll say. And I'll do two or three passes and go, great, next tune. But I've also had some producers come up and try to hum licks in my ear and they can't carry a tune. It was very difficult to interpret what they wanted, but they felt the need to contribute to the guitar part. That's just part of the gig. You know, you, okay, man, let me try this if that's what you're hearing. And then um, you mentioned Off the Wall. I only played on one tune. Uh, it was called by Quincy and Tom Baylor, the composer. Tom called and he said, we've got this one ballad there. It's got to be you. Can you come in and do it? So I did. And it was just Michael's vocal and Greg Gaines' keyboard part on She's Out of My Life was the cut. Yeah. And um, so it was very sparse. And so the first couple of things that I played, 
looking for the right combination against the roads. Uh, we did one take and Quincy leaned over to Bruce Fuedeen, the engineer, and he said, will it print? And Bruce said, it's too low. My range was too low. It sounded beautiful, but it's not, it wasn't going to print against the roads. So I had to find something in a different range. That was great direction, great producing. Quincy leaned on his engineer. Yeah. And then I came up with those harmonics and those other parts on another pass. So each, yeah, each producer's different, different. That's great. Okay. I want to get into the spot where hopefully I don't make you uncomfortable. And I tell you my absolute favorite guitar solo of all time is Kid Charlemagne. Absolute favorite guitar <laughs> solo of all time. I'm sure you hear this all the time. I'm sure you're sick of hearing it, but I got to know because Steely Dan is known for running their guitar players. I mean, there's just, there's, they're not, I mean, it's uh, it, there's legend of, 10-hour sessions of one guitar solo over and over again. How long did it take you to get that Kid Charlemagne solo? And there's two of them. There's the middle right. one and there's the thing at the end. How long did that right. take, How long did that session take you? Maybe. Now, I've talked to Donald and Walter about this years later because they have better memory of those things than I do. I would say an hour and a half. Oh, yes! Yeah, um... Walter reminded me some years ago that he suggested for Kid Charlemagne, he said, hey, why don't you try a Strat? So I pulled out a Strat. And we tried a couple takes. He said, nah, go back to your thing. And then I pulled out the 335, and it was not long after that that we were into it. I think I did the first solo about halfway through, and something didn't happen. They said, let's pick it up. And we picked it up, and then that was it for that. And the ending was all done in one pass, just as we continued. That so whole ending right outro solo was all just one pass. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love hearing that. I love oh, hearing you. that. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've never pieced together. I've never learned a solo before I got to this studio either. Yeah. Some young guys will say, sounds like he worked it out at home. And then came to the studio and played. No, 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 no. You're just that good. <laughs> well, the note fairy was very generous that night. Oh, that's funny. Now, do you remember that solo? Like, could you play that now? Or would you I, like I learned. I went back and learned that solo because the guys called me about eight years ago and wanted to know if I would guest on eight or nine shows with them. Okay. So I knew I would have to play Kit Charlemagne. Yeah. And I asked, I asked some friends, because I hadn't played it in 35 years. Yeah. Uh, I asked some friends. I said, do you think I should learn the original solo for Kid Charlemagne like I played it? Or shall I just play the way I play now? And <laughs> my good friends just looked at me with that funny little face they do. And they go, Larry, play the solo. Because <laughs> people so are going to be singing it. People sing along to that solo. Yeah. So I learned it. And played it note for note. And still to this day in my show, if we do Kid Charlemagne, I play the solo note for note. Amazing. Actually, I studied with John Harrington. I did some lessons with John, who's been yeah. playing with Steely Dan for years. And I asked him, how are you going to, like, when you get the call for that gig, there's so many iconic guitar solos. Do you just learn them all note for note and just play them down? And he had a great, approach to it he told me he's like you know if you because at the time i was 
auditioning for a couple bands and I was playing with a couple bands that had some kind of iconic solos, things that people would sing along with, like you're talk like we're yeah. talking about with Kitchellman. He said, you know what? Make sure that anything that feels like it's just what everybody knows, play that and get that the core and the essence of it. And then you yeah. can add a little of your own flavor. That's that was his approach. And I remember then seeing him play with Steely Dan live. And it was really cool the way he he wove in the original solos from Kid Charlemagne, Peg, My Old School, Real sure. in the Year. You know, there's so many solos. Oh, that's a really cool way of approaching that. But yeah, I mean, your your friend is right. You you gotta you that one you kind of gotta <laughs> play. <laughs> well, it was good input from my friends. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, you talked about going from the Strat to the 335. Now, for me, I'm a Strat guy, and right. I've been associated with the Strat at this point. And also, it's just, to me, it feels like when I pick up the Strat, of course, I I'm going to sound like me on any instrument, but when I pick up the Strat, it feels like my voice flows out of me. My creativity flows out in a way that's just a little more effortless. Yeah. Do you feel that way with the 335? Well, overall, of course I do. I, I bought it new in 1969, so it's 51 years old now, and it's been with me that whole time. Yeah, it just became an extension of my body for all the styles of music that I like to play. There, there were seasons, as I'm sure you're aware, where I played a Strat for a number of years. I played Valley Arts Telly for a number of years and became familiar. They became an extension of my body after a while, too. The 335 has the most history with my DNA. So when I pick up a 335 style guitar, that's the one that's probably going to feel the most comfortable to me. Yeah. Okay. I have a question about that because for me, I sometimes wrestle with, you know what? I like to play a telly, but I think a lot of people expect me to play a strat or when they see me play, it's like, oh, you're not playing a strat on that tune. You're the strat guy. Right. How do you, right. I'm sure you get that with the 335. I mean, they call you Mr. 335. <laughs> Come on, you give the guy a break. Although that's an honor, it kind of, of in, in some way, you know, it, you, you have to kind of wrestle with, like you're saying, sometimes playing a Strat or playing a Telly. Where do you go about trying to find, okay, I want to explore this part of my voice on a different instrument or like on a Strat mm -hmm. or a Telly or a, an acoustic guitar? Sure, sure. Uh, I just do it um, and not worry so much about the consequences from 40 guitar players in the audience who go, <laughs> oh, no. In 1997, I think it was, I took a telly. I have a 51 telly that I took that on the road and did a whole tour in Europe. And there's actually a uh, video of me playing So What at the Montreux Jazz Festival on my telly. And my chops were up from the tour. Yeah. So we played it real fast. Not the way we normally play it. Yeah. But it's me on a telly playing bebop. So yeah, just go for it. I love that. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to, I want to stay on the guitars, but I, I need a quick detour since you brought up a Miles tune. You brought up So What? I saw an incredible clip from a Bill Murray movie called Scrooged where you have a cameo in this movie playing on the street. It's you, Paul Schaefer, David Sanborn, and Miles Davis. And Bill Murray right. walks by you guys. What was that like? That must have been insane. Yeah. 
It was, you know, I was living in LA, but they were shooting the movie in New York. And I just got this call that the producer, and I don't know if that means Bill. Sure. But anyway, they uh, handpicked the guys they wanted for that little cameo part and to come record. So yeah, I flew to, flew to New York, recorded one night with the guys. And then we went and stood around on the street so Bill could walk by and say, get a job to get these jazz musicians on the, on the street corner. It was great. It was a very, very cool experience. That's when I got to meet and uh, hang out a little bit with Miles Davis. Wow. Years later, uh, I was on the same bill as Miles at the Concord Jazz Pavilion. Yeah. And so Miles was getting ready to come out of his dressing room. So a number of us went to say hello before he was going to go on stage. And he walked out and he looked at me and he said, there, and he kissed me right on the mouth. He <laughs> <laughs> was a character. That's only, there's been two men that have kissed me on the mouth in my life. Miles Davis and Jeff Porcaro. Wow. Yeah, Jeff and I, you know, we recorded so much together. And after my shooting incident in 1988, uh, when I recovered, I went to the studio one night and Jeff, that's the first time we were going to see each other in about six months. And he walked right up Italian, you know, yeah. kissed me right on the mouth. Man, love you, bro. So there's a little Miles and Scrooged story put together. That is incredible. Wow. Now, you blew past something that we should probably talk about since you mentioned it. Just touch on it. You talked about a shooting incident in 1988. Yeah. I don't, I've, I've heard a little bit about the story. Is there anything sure. you want to talk about there? What was, I mean, how do you, how do you reconcile your, your artistry and, and where you're at when you can't play your instrument, can't express yourself in your music in that recovery time and just going through that trauma physically and mentally? Yeah, boy. It was 1988, April. I had a home in the Hollywood Hills where my studio was and um, office in front of the house where the garage would be. Anyway, door was open and I saw a couple of kids jogging with their dog. So I went to close the door to the office so the dog wouldn't come in. <clears throat> when I did, one of the kids just pulled out a gun and shot me in the throat and they ran off. That's why my voice gets all funky. I only have one vocal cord that works. It blew away the nerve to that one. So anyway, one vocal cord that works. Lost the use of my left arm completely. It shut down the nerves to my left arm. So I, I had no feeling, a lot of physical therapy, a lot of drugs for the pain. And after four or five months, I forget now. I could physically pick up an acoustic and try to make a chord. So it took a while for it to come back. But that's basically it. one of those random gunshots in L.A. I happened to be the guy that day. Lost the use of my voice. My arm came back, thank God. And uh, that's been no problem throughout my life. But it's just, yeah, the voice thing. If I talk too long and push too hard, it starts to cut out on me a little bit. But I'm good other than that. Wow. I'm sure that was uh, quite a... You talk about seasons of your life, you know, that must have, that must have been quite a season, uh, coming, coming back from that. But it sounds to me like, like you have a great attitude about that and yeah. that you, that you've been able to, to recover from it, both physically, mostly physically and, and, uh, mentally and emotionally as well. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's been a long time. And it, like you say, it was a season that just happened uniquely to me. 
And after a certain amount of time, you're thankful that life just goes on. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm grateful that uh, you've, you're, you're playing and, and, and feeling good. So we talked about the 335. Let's just, let's just switch from that. 335. Now, there's a new guitar you have out with Sire, your signature guitar. Can you tell me a little bit about this? How did you develop this? And tell me about the pickups, the neck, the feel, the sound of the guitar. Give, give me the whole rundown. I got I to gotta check this thing out. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's with Sire, S-I-R-E. And they approached me a few years back. I was no longer endorsing with Gibson. They really weren't promoting the Larry Carlton model. And the uh, most of the Larry Carlton models that came later with Gibson, they weren't consistent. The necks weren't exactly like mine. So we just called it quits. So a few years later, I was approached by Sire. And they said, we would like to show you five of the guitars that we've made. Let me preface that by saying they make the Marcus Miller bass. Yep. I have several friends with that Marcus bass. And it's killer. Yeah, I know. Marcus has been with them, I think, about eight years now. So anyway, they brought, they flew from Korea to uh, Nashville and brought five guitars to show me the quality. And it was unbelievable, the quality of these instruments for the price. So we, I gave them my 69-335 and said, can you cop this so it feels and sounds just like mine? And they took it to Korea, worked on it, and started sending guitars back, and they nailed it. That's all I can say. And my, my inspiration, though, because the quality is so high, is the price point for guys that want to get into a really high-quality instrument for about $600. Wow. I know. I know. And there are a lot of guitar players out there that don't have three grand to go buy something, you know? And that really, at this stage of my career, for me to be able to offer this to guys. So we have about nine models in there. There's a Strat model. There's a Les Paul model. There's a Tele model. We have an acoustic model that's modeled after my Valley Arts acoustic. Two or three colors in the 335 type guitars. So I'm excited because so far the response has been incredible around the world to these guitars. And that means more young guys can afford to get a good guitar. I love that. Me too. That's That's great. great. That's really cool. I love hearing about people making great instruments that artists are excited about that are also very affordable. Yeah. And it, it feels like it, it feels like that time in history. We should have mm-hmm. great instruments that are really affordable and also great instruments that are expensive. Sure. <laughs> you know, there, there's sure. a place for that as well. But it seems like with the technology, with the, the knowledge and everything that we know now, it's kind of, to me, seems like there's almost no excuse for a bad instrument these days. I agree. I agree. So that's awesome. I'm glad that they yeah. are they're doing that and that you're so exci- excited about it because now I'm stoked to play one. I got to check one out. I got to check out mm-hmm. the 335. Cool. Well, before we close out, I have a few fun questions that I just like to ask some of my guests every once in a while. It's it's gear related questions since we're talking gear, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lob you a nice a nice slow pitch here at the end of it. But if mm-hmm. there's if there's one piece of gear that every guitar player needs around $20 or less. What does every guitar player need? Picks. Picks. What kind of picks do you use? 
People always ask. For many years, yeah, for many years they used Dunlop heavies, teardrop. Okay. Now I've gone to even the smaller ones, but they're heavy picks. Mm. Yeah. Even for rhythm stuff. Yeah, I don't play much rhythm. Okay. Like you're a nail, you bet you're a master of that. I play a lot of comping. Yeah. But not a lot of chunk, chunk, chunk rhythm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Piece of gear around two hundred dollars ish or less. What does every guitar player need? Have no idea. I haven't bought a piece of gear in thirty years. That's <laughs> the truth. So, so there's there's two ways to interpret this, Larry. Either everybody's just giving you stuff for free, which I'm sure there is a lot of, or you're just satisfied with the stuff that you have because you have great gear. Yeah, it's the latter. Um, I'm comfortable with my sound and my little pedal board that has a volume pedal on it and a little reverb. I don't even remember what kind of reverbs on it, to tell you the truth. It's been on there so long. I'm not a gear guy. Really? Okay, so even... your pedal board is a volume pedal and a reverb. Um, and a tap delay. Okay, what color pedal is the reverb? Can you at least tell us the color of the reverb? One of us will be able to verify what it is. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, I'm just not into it. You know, I've, I've had great techs work with me before and they find these things and say, how does this one sound, Larry? It's the one we think is the best. And if I like it, then it's on the pedal board and I probably don't even know the name of it. Great. I love that. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna. So the answer is uh, just uh, something that sounds good that other people say is good. If you like it, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. Okay, now here's my last one: is what's a piece of gear that every guitar player needs? Price is not an issue. If price is not an issue, being non-specific, I would say get the amp that you want. Mm. So if they can pay if they can pay a hundred grand for an amp and that's the amp they want, I would say get that. Uh, same with the guitar. If you need a '59 Les Paul because that's your dream and money's not an issue, then get it. You don't have to have it, but it'd be nice because you'll want it. Now you said, is there an amp for a hundred thousand dollars that you want? Get it. I mean, there's only one amp that's a hundred thousand dollars, right? <laughs> <laughs> the only one I know of are the yeah the Dumbles. Do you still have uh, a dumbbell? You know, um, no, I I play Bluto Tone, which is a clone of my dumbbell. Yeah, Brandon makes great amps for the price. I don't know, three or four grand, probably are custom made. Yeah, I've been playing them almost ten years now. Yeah, I'm completely happy with my Bluto Tone. Yeah, okay. And what what are like the three amps that you've used? Of, I I heard the use. Did you use um? Didn't you use kind of a small amp on Kid? What did you use on Kid Charlemagne? Yeah, an old Fender Tweed Deluxe. Oh, Tweed Deluxe. Okay. Yeah. In fact, it's sitting right here at my feet right now. I was trying it on a tune for Paul Brown the other day. I ended up going back to the Blue Door. It wasn't right for that tune. Okay. But yeah, I have that little, little Deluxe, the Steely Dan Deluxe, is sitting right here next to me. Okay. So, is can Sire just please come over to your house right now and make the, a clone of that as well for us? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was a pretty cool amp. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Okay. I did. There is one question that I, that I forgot to ask that I'd be curious just to finish up because you've talked a lot about your own lineage and what you've studied and been excited about. And also just a lot of the music that you've played. The state of jazz today, it's gone in so many different directions from like you're talking about when you grew up, 
you've seen jazz go in so many directions from the 50s, 60s, 70s, literally every decade. And now it feels like also there's so many subgenres of jazz and subgenres of subgenres. How do you feel about the state of jazz today and where do you think it's going? Well, I don't know where it's going, but I know it's changed as it should over the last 20, 25 years, for sure, as it had changed when fusion came in and it was jazz influenced. So yeah, I hear some of the guys, serious jazz influenced players, but they're not playing bebop. Yeah. And it's just progressing the way guys are hearing it different now. I wish them well. I'm not sure there's a huge audience for that kind of passion. But yeah, jazz influenced players of what I hear today. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to what my generation would have called jazz, you know, bebop or miles of the 60s. And it should progress like that to where it becomes its own thing. Yeah. There's some great players out there. Some great players out there. Awesome. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It really means a lot. What what a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, congratulations, Corey. You're doing great. Thank you, man. That means <laughs> you a lot. Got, you got a lot going on, man. I'm proud of you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon, my friend. Thank you. Larry Carlton! Straight up legend, I'm telling you. That's amazing. Now, if you're not hip to Larry, if all this was foreign to you, look, just go look it up online. Look up his discography, go to All Music or whatever to see everything he's played on. Check it out. Hey, I really appreciate you listening this week. Next week's gonna be great. I have my good friend, Mark Lettieri. We'll see you next time. Peace!